In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. I'm joined today by D.B. Sweeney, the film actor, on In Discussion. He was born November the 14th, 1961, in Shoreham, New York, and has since made four theatre appearances on both Broadway and in Los Angeles productions. He used the name Danny Sweeney at the beginning of his acting career, but since there was another actor with that name on the SAG productions list, he had to change his name and therefore chose D.B. Sweeney. He first started out with small roles, gradually increasing the size of his parts as he began appearing in miniseries and TV shows. He has been a voice for two Disney children movies, and his love of baseball landed him two roles, playing shoeless Joe Jackson in Eight Men Out and a baseball coach in Hardball. He's appeared in science fiction movies including Fire in the Sky and he appealed to female fans in the romantic The Cutting Edge, in which he played an ex-hockey player turned figure skater. That role subsequently led him to playing hockey in celebrity games. Recently, he's moved from actor to writer-director with his film Dirt Nap, which has been a big hit at film festivals. D.B. Sweeney recently quoted from the Letters from Hollywood official website, I've come across many other people in show business, who also support you, quietly appreciate the admirable reasons and the ideals you uphold. And that's what Letters from Hollywood is all about, giving some of these folks a way to reach you. Every week, you're going to hear from a different person, actors, writers, directors, technicians and patriots. People who get what you do and want to say thanks because what you're doing deserves it. D.B. Sweeney. D.B. Sweeney, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You've had an amazing career. You started, you were born over on the East Coast. And how did you really get into acting? What was it that attracted you? I was dared, much like the uh, the the, uh, the show uh, High School Musical. You know, I was one of the jocks in my high school, and we had a new drama teacher who came into the school and and sort of realized that that if he wanted to do plays like Grease and West Side Story, he would need some sort of you know guy guys. So he challenged all uh, all the seniors. Uh, he sort of challenged our manhood if we had the nerve to to be in a play. It was brilliant psychology, and a bunch of us went and did a play and had a great time. And, uh, and then we did one more play that year with him, and uh, we really had a great time continuing to play sports and everything. I went off to college to play baseball, I, and uh, that was my ambition, was to, to be a professional baseball player. I was injured in my freshman year. I left the university I was at and went home to New York. I was in New Orleans. I went home to New York because my sister was, my older sister was at New York University. She was studying French literature, and I, and I thought, while I repair my knee and try to figure out where I'm going to go play baseball next, 
I sort of fell into NYU and the acting program sort of as a, as a placeholder. I had never really planned to be an actor as a career. I just thought, well, that's where all the prettiest girls are going to be in the, in the acting program. So, so and, and I thought it would be the least amount of work, and I could say I was in college. What about your mother and father? How did they think about that? Well, my dad uh, was a history teacher who then became a guidance counselor in public school, and my mom was, you know, she was the clerk in our little town on Long Island. And uh, they were always very supportive of, of whatever I wanted to do, and uh, I don't think either of them took it very seriously. They thought it was just a passing fad, which is really what I thought it was. I thought I'll do this for a year or two and then, I don't know, go to law school or cooking school or something and figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I started really approaching um, acting in a very um, uh, organic way. I mean, I, I, I couldn't get a part in any of the plays at NYU, so my friends and I found this empty space at NYU and we sort of started our own little theater within the university and started just doing play after play after play. And, you know, I learned to do the lights and I, I was doing the sound and, and I would direct one and then, you know, it was the only way to get a part was to put on the whole circus. So, uh, you know, some nights we'd, we'd do a play and there'd be three people there and some nights there'd be 43 and, and uh, you know, we learned how to act sort of uh, right, uh, you know, right, right in front of people. Did you have a reference point? I mean, was there anything that you watched or theaters that you, you visited to, to get a feel of the tone and manner, the type of actor that you wanted to be? Well, there was a, there was a theater on Bleecker Street called Circle in the Square downtown, and, and they did some great stuff. And I was, I was a really a voracious consumer of all, um, all the acting I could get my hands on from movies to plays and being in New York City at that time um, there were just literally hundreds of off and off off Broadway theaters where people would be doing much the same thing so we called our theater it was at 725 Broadway was the NYU building which is now I think called the Tisch building or somebody mm -hmm. gave a hundred million dollars and renamed it. it was Tisch and uh, but at that time it was just it was just a building that said 725 Broadway and I thought well, we'll just call it the 725 Broadway Theater. We won't tell anybody that it's NYU students because that might def deter them from coming. So, but yeah, it was very similar to many other little theaters that were down there on the Bowery, the Bowery Lane Theater. All these other theaters in the neighborhood were very much the same. And I thought, well, we'll just pretend to be one of them. And uh, we'll do the, pl the plays which have parts that we all want to play. And uh, it was really fun. I interviewed Jerry Zucker. He has an amazing story. It's almost as if he had the passion from a very early age. And he was up in the Northeast, and he knew the only way to really make it happen was to come to Hollywood with his brother. Was that a realization once you got into your teens that really get into Hollywood, you'd, you'd have to come here? Or did you feel that as if you could do it from that side of the country? Well, when I, when I started doing the, doing the plays and attending NYU, I had no illusions that I would you know, I didn't even dream that I could be in Hollywood. First of all, I didn't think I was going to make a career as an actor. Or if, that, if I did, I would be a, a stage actor, and then maybe I'd get a job at a state university teaching acting to supplement. You know, I was sort of cobbling together some scenario that maybe I could make a living in that way. But Hollywood was never even on my radar. I, I didn't think it was possible. I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know anybody who'd ever, you know, become a movie actor or a TV actor. So it really was, it wasn't even, it wasn't even part of my calculus. And. Uh, and that all changed when Francis Coppola hired me to, to star in his movie Gardens of Stone. I, I went from, you know, one of thousands of aspiring actors in New York to the star of his movie. So it just changed everything. And I thought, wow, maybe I could actually have a career. In many ways, there's a parity with your career and Sir Michael York. Michael talked about those actors who can really be blessed 
by getting into acting at a very early age or or sometimes they may wait until they're 50 or 60 to really get into it. Taming of the Shrew was his in. That's what took him into the business very young, very quickly. Francis Coppola, that was the new chapter. That that was really what launched you into becoming an actor at a very young age. Yeah, that was uh, even before the film was completed because he had hired me Hollywood producers were calling and offering me movies with the enormous salaries, you know, nothing compared to what they make today, but, you know, a lot to me, you know, I mean, they were offering me more money for 10 weeks than my dad ever made in a year. And I thought, this is amazing. And, uh, um, and I, I, got, I got some great opportunities, you know, right, right out of that experience. You know, I got to do Eight Men Out, I got to do Memphis Bell, I got to do Lonesome Dove. Those were some great scripts that, I mean, I really think I jumped to the head of the list of people they were considering because Francis Coppola had said he's the star of my movie, so that emprunteur was enough for other people to consider me vetted. And at that stage, were you still looking at theatre? Yeah, I never stopped. I mean, I, I really, I love it. I love to get out there, and maybe that's the part of that's the part of sports that um, that I always enjoyed the most was sort of you know not being the center of attention, but being on the spot at the moment. You know, at, at the crucial moment of the game, you want the ball, and and I think that was the most exciting thing to me about sports. And then when you get out in front of people doing a play, there is a, you know, there's an element of suspense, even if it's as you're starting out, if it's will this guy screw it up, um, or will will this person on stage surprise me? And that tension between the performer and the audience is, it's very exciting, and it's something that you just don't get from TV and movies. You know, I mean, I think that's why a lot of actors become cut-ups, and they're always trying to entertain the crew to to regain that experience of where you get an immediate response to what, what you're doing. Do you see yourself as a method actor? No, no. I, I think that um, I think that that's one of the most damaging ideas for actors. I, I really think that, uh, you know, I work, I've worked with a couple actors who I won't name who want to be called by their character's name. And when, when they're looking at me and performing the scene, behind me there's 40 people and a camera. So if you're able to pretend that the camera and the 40 people aren't there, why can't you just pretend that you're this other person? Sure. You, you know, it just, it, and, and I know that there's, that's a, an oversimplification of the method and, and, uh, and that's only one aspect of it. I think there's things about it that are very useful and, and most actors get, you know, method training and some of the relaxation training that, that is um, a big part of that is very helpful. Um, but I think that if, if you don't realize that you're a performer playing a role or you're trying to, you know, hypnotize yourself that you're not, I, I just don't see how that's useful. Daniel Day-Lewis comes to mind. I mean, this guy, you can't talk to. Nobody can talk to. He completely immerses himself in the character to the point, apparently, where if he goes home, he's unreachable. I mean, is that necessary part of the time if you've got a very, very deep role that you really do have to become that insulated? I mean, he's a great actor, so if that works for him, I mean, that's uh, far be it for me to criticize him and, you know, of course, Marlon Brando and... James Dean, there's so many examples of great actors who come from a method foundation. So it's, it's, you know, acting's a hard job and whatever gets people through it. To me, it just seems illogical that I have to sort of persuade myself that I'm not sitting on a film set, that I'm sitting in a prison somewhere, that I'm actually not D.B. Sweeney, that I'm some other. That feels like a lot of extra work. I'd rather just focus on, you know, more, I mean, more of what Sandy Meisner talks about, which is what, what, are, you, what are you attempting to achieve? You know, what are you trying to do? What's your action? What are you trying to get? All those kinds of things are more fun to me than trying to persuade myself that I'm, you know, uh, some 
I don't know, Russian guy in the 1890s. You know, I'm not. I'm, I'm me, and I'm performing. And of course, you're gonna, you know, you build the character in a different way. But I, I just find that 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 method thing it gets in the way, on, especially on film sets. I mean, I, what about Francis Coppola? Looking back to that, what did he teach you more than anything? The biggest lesson of the whole experience is, you know, you're going to get certain opportunities that are going to come your way and you just have to be ready. You know, to use, to use the baseball analogy, you know, if you're not ready to swing, there's no way you're going to hit the ball. So, you know, it was, it was an understanding of like which scenes were really important and where you really had to deliver the goods and other scenes that were maybe less important and, and to understand the difference and to understand which parts of your, where, where the emphasis should be from scene to scene. In other words, you can't play the whole part in every, in every scene and you shouldn't. But uh, he kind of gave me a sense of how you had to technically structure your performance, you know, that there were high, lo high notes and low notes and, and that you should be aware of it as an actor and you shouldn't just be oblivious to the, to the storytelling aspect of your character, especially when you're the lead character and the story essentially is your character arc. You, you need to understand that, that the audience needs certain information at certain times and, you know, you just can't sort of blunder obliviously through the, the process of playing scenes. If you transition back from being on the film set and you go back into theater, and now, on the film set, you haven't really got a reference point. You haven't got an audience to give you that reaction. How does it change when you go back onto a stage and now you're suddenly approached by people who are feeding you this extraordinary power to elevate you as an actor in what you're doing? How does that work for you? Well, it's, it's, it's very exhilarating, you know, and I, and I really, uh, no matter how big a theater you're playing in, it, you know, you have to assume, I always assume that there's people in the audience that have never seen me do this before, and they're probably suspicious since I, they already know me from film and television, so they want me to prove it, and I'm not going to, you know, try and prove that I can act, but at the same time, there is a, there's a process whereby I know in the first five or ten minutes of any uh, play that they're going to decide whether they're comfortable with turning themselves over to me for the evening and, I, and I, I love that part of it because you can actually you can feel the audience decide to go with you and it's just it's a great you know feeling I mean I'm sure it's what Caesar or people like that feel on a more, much larger scale you know where David Koresh I don't know it's a very powerful moment when when you realize that, that the audience will give in to you and they're gonna go with you for 90 minutes or two hours or they're gonna go with this character and they're gonna go with this story and, and you sort of settle in and uh, it's just a great feeling uh, it's, it's very hard to put it exactly into words but it has something to do with you don't have their compliance but you sort of have their um, they're willing they, 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 they signal to you with their body language and with their with the sounds that some people are making sounds like hmm or whatever or you can and, hear and you can feel oh, that. You, you hear it and you feel it and you can sense it and you know I mean the the other side of it is when it's not working everybody starts coughing and, and cough, <laughs> you figure that out. Coughing's contagious, and you know, and and it's bad in the winter in New York because everybody's already coughing anyway. But when they're really into the play, they suppress it and they try to wait until it's a laughing line, and then they <clears throat> everybody kind of gets their coughs out in a polite way. But if they don't buy what you're doing, they they just start coughing. And Has there ever been a time when you felt that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you have to be bad, I think, in some plays to to learn what you're good at, and. I've been bad in some plays, and, and they usually let you know. What about if you go into a more classical drama? Uh, maybe go into Shakespeare or some sort of decadent story structure, perhaps. How does that work for you? I've always had a, a sort of a, a push-me-pull-you relationship with Shakespeare because I, 
I can't imagine that uh, most of the people in Elizabethan England were speaking the way we're taught to do Shakespeare. Uh, you know, the classical, you know, uh, uh, mid-Atlantic uh, formal, you know, sound. And, you know, and, and certain characters like, you know, if you play Falstaff, a lot of people will let themselves off the hook and you can play that guy with less perfect diction and there's certain characters. But, you know, I mean, I think uh, um, Richard III is, is uh, I don't know, I think that guy should, I think it's interesting if he has some sort of a, of a very harsh, guttural, um, non-formal speaking pattern. You know, and some actors will allow themselves to do that. So, so I'm always attracted to the parts in Shakespeare where you can do that. I mean, if you're playing Romeo, I think you should worship those couplets as best you can and, and really sing those lines. With that said, do you think that the directors like Kenneth Branagh, who had interpretations of this, or even DiCaprio, uh, do you think that putting a, a modern slant on Shakespeare uh, is is something that would be of interest to you? Absolutely, I think that the stories are so good. I mean, the plots, you know, some of them he borrowed obviously from, uh, you know, Plautus and Terence. I mean, they're not all original plots, but at this end, and obviously he takes torn from the pages of, of the recent history of England. I mean, he, he was uh, he was a master adapter, um, but I think that, that the plays are so durable that they can, you can't really, I mean, Romeo and Juliet's a perfect example. I mean, it's, it's completely actor-proof. If you say the lines, it works. And uh, so I haven't heard anybody say that before. <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, it's just so, so durable and you can't really hurt it. I don't know that the modern dress helps it so much because, and I wish I could remember the movie, but I remember seeing some movie set 250 years ago or so in France and it was a very wealthy family and the, the, uh, the father, uh, you know, the, the patriarch of the family in the middle of dinner stood up and stepped four feet away from the table and there was a servant there with a, with a pan and he opened his trousers and peed in the pan and the servant covered it with the cloth and left the room and I thought well of course that they didn't have indoor plumbing so that's something like that probably would transpire and, I, and I, so that's why I think that the fun of if you keep Shakespeare you know in the, in the 16th century or the 17th century where you want to if you set it there some of the challenges that people faced in living are gonna are gonna help the material you know as soon as you put guns in there why would you have a sword fight if you can have a gun so I, I think that modernize. I think having a modern attitude in that period is more useful than having a modern period. As you move through your career, you go into television, into some series. How does that work for you? Now you've got multi-camera setups. You've got a lot of DPs around you. Uh, is that a uh, yet again a, a different chapter, a different approach to take, rather than to being on a film set? Very much so. My first TV show was Strange Luck. And it was a good show. It's about a guy who, uh, who was the only survivor of a plane crash when he was two years old. And either because of that or, or maybe that was an example of his condition, he is always around something bizarre. If he goes into a bank, it's the day the bank's being robbed. So it was a kind of a neat character. And Brandon Tartikoff really wanted me to play this part. He came after me in a very big way and he said, you know, you're going to be the guy. And, and so I went to do this TV show and the writer really resisted my input. And I'd come from film sets where guys like John Sayles and Francis Coppola were saying, what do you think we should, what about this line? It's not really working, do you have another idea? And I'd be like, sure, yeah, I could maybe do this. And they'd say, great, let's do that. And then you go to TV where the writers, in American TV anyway, where the writer is king and you don't change the lines without the writer's consent. And I thought, well, the movie scripts I've seen are better and they want your input. 
and these scripts have flaws, but it's just, I understand why now, in hindsight, because what, you're working so much faster that if you're having a conversation about every scene, about how we can improve the scene, you'll never make the day's work. So I understand why they do it, but I had a real uh, adjustment problem with that on that show, and uh, it, it hurt the, uh, the show's chances, I think, because I was battling with the writer. It's always trying to make it better in my view, but in their view, I think they thought I was meddling. So as you grow in, in this world, are you still reluctant to get involved in the writing? Is it something that you would prefer to say, okay, you're, you receive the script, they say, do you want to do this? And you like the script. Do you then say to yourself, okay, I, I just want to act it, so I'm, I'm not going to really start fighting the writer on this. Do you just go with the flow? Yeah, I, I mean, I basically decided to just treat it like when I was doing a play uh, I would never have changed the lines yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna presume to to uh, make a suggestion to Mr. Tennessee Williams or <laughs> or Mr. O'Neill yeah, that I think would be they, difficult yeah and uh, or, or you know to their ghost but uh, you know so I just decided you know what regardless of what the level of this material is that I'm doing unless they specifically ask me to change or improve a line I'm just gonna try and make it my challenge to to make this really crappy line less crappy in my performance and it makes the day shorter you know you get to go on with your life and ultimately they you know they'll do six takes and you had five great takes of things that you had lived and the one take where you said the line the way the writer wrote it they'll almost stick with that one just to prove that they're the boss in the edit and so it becomes a kind of a, a strange uh, and counterproductive dance so I, I feel like it's you know I'll say this I'll say the lines the way they wrote them if, if that's what they want Memphis Bell hugely successful film great director great cast anything that you come away from that now so many years later distinctive in your mind memories that come from that film memphis bell was a was a great experience in so many ways and and so many things spring to mind just when you mention it. i mean but the uh i think as it fades back you know into history um it's sort of the end of an era because if you made memphis bell today it would all be green screen it would all be visual effects and we literally had, when we look like we're in a plane, we were either were in a plane or we were in a, a full-scale mock-up of a plane. And, um, and those outdoor scenes, when planes are flying by, those are really fighter planes or those are really bombers. We had six B-17s and 13 fighter planes for two months in England. And, you know, if I, I remember I had one scene with John Lithgow where we had a flying circus where they had an aerial coordinator um, routing the planes to pass through the shot over our heads because at that time there was no possibility of throwing a plane in you know nowadays we'd shoot a scene on a, a stage in culver city or someplace and and uh you know some computer technician would have a plane fly by and the difference as an actor is so palpable uh, when you know we can all pretend but when you actually when a loud engine goes by from a plane and you sort of do you miss that? I really miss it, and I feel like it's uh, it's unfortunate because I find that most of the big Hollywood movies today, uh, from Avatar to Spider-Man, they're so cold because they they seem to take their inspiration more from video games, and 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 there's a sort of unreality to video games which is accepted in that genre, um, you know, both visually and and in terms of the capabilities of characters, and so I'm I'm very dis uh, detached from those movies because I, they don't I, I don't feel like I can touch it and uh, the movies that I grew up on you know whether it's uh, bullet you know uh, Steve McQueen sticking his head out the uh, <laughs> I mean 
Peter Yates told me a story. He directed me in this film, Roommates, and he told me a story about how um, he, Steve McQueen was a very skilled driver and he really wanted to do all the driving. And they did one shot where he did this great move. And, and uh, when, when Steve McQueen came to the camera after it was over, he said, how was that? And they said, it was great, you know, and he said, could you see me? And they said, well, no, it, you know, it, the car looked great. So the next take they did, he, as he backs up, he sticks his head out the window, so you know it's Steve McQueen driving, and, and that's the one that's in the movie. And, and you know, when you, when you watch, you know, uh, French Connection and Gene Hackman, is, you're really in the streets of New York City going underneath the elevated trains and mm -hmm. that car chase, and mm -hmm. it's, just so, it's just so much more, um, Visceral, I think, when when the when the scene is shot in a real place as opposed to in somebody's computer. So Memphis Bell really was the end of a era for you. Very much, yeah, and and then uh, and I think for Hollywood as well. I think that's when visual effects started to become cheap enough that you could you could make a whole movie. You know, James Cameron's dream. You know, to dispatch with actors. So you're dancing between film and television, Lonesome Dove. You got a, a, amazing actors. You know, like Duval. Uh, anything about Lotion and Dove that you look back to now and, and have fond memories of? Well, I learned so much from uh, Dean Semler, was our second unit cameraman on, on uh, Lonesome Dove. And as I was the main cowboy, the top hand, and my job in the story was leading the cows from the Rio Grande River in Texas up to Montana. I mean, that's so in any shot where you see the the head of the herd, that's me at the head of the herd. So a lot of that was second unit shots that, that Dean Semler and I and a bunch of uh, stunt guys playing the other cowboys, we would take however many cows we had that day, anywhere from 300 to 3,000 on some days. And, and Dean would set up three or four cameras and I would put the cow, I would lead the cows in position because they knew the, that they had to train the cows to follow my horse and me so that when we did shots, it wouldn't be all chaotic. So it was easier to have me do it than have the cowboys do it. So. Um, Dean was just such a great guy, and I, I didn't realize it until after, but you know, he, he did Dances with Wolves just after that and won mm -hmm. his Oscar, and uh, he had used the second unit photography of Lonesome Dove as a study for how to compose and shoot and how to be around animals. And I just learned so much from, from him about you know, the language of, of film and the visual language of film. Where did you go after that? Do you want to be a film actor and still, or would you rather be a writer at this stage? Uh, writing is, is hard. I mean, I, I would love to I would love to be a film actor, but the scripts that they offer me right now are not worth doing. So to play the kind of roles that I want to play in movies, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that I have to either create them or find them in alternative you know, means than waiting for like the studios or agents to give me a great part, because that just isn't happening. So looking back, I wonder, Letters from Hollywood that you've recently started, which uh, putting words in your mouth, so I'll wait for your description, but it's celebrating the troops abroad. It's uh, offering them hope. It's it, giving them a connection with film actors, this business. Is that something, looking back to Memphis Bell, that maybe you were thinking about that then? You know, I, I've had a long uh, journey towards getting to this place where I felt like I wanted to do that, and, and it goes back to my, my grandfather, fought in the First World War and uh, he was uh, awarded two Purple Hearts. He was you know, under some very serious engagements. He was badly wounded and I remember when I was a little kid, if there was a thunderstorm, he would have a, this incredible, you know, he was shell-shocked and he, what they now call PTSD, they didn't have that name yet. And he would sometimes run around slamming doors and trying to hide from the thunderstorm. And uh, I didn't understand it, but I knew it was connected to his experience in the war. And uh, later on, um, when I was in high school, I wore a POW bracelet 
uh, for a soldier that was from near my town in Long Island, who was you know in, in Southeast Asia as a prisoner. And I remember when he when he w was released when the war was over, he was introduced in front of our, uh, before our basketball game in high school, and some people clapped, some people hissed, and I thought that's just terrible. I mean, this guy has been a prisoner. He you know he didn't declare war on the North Vietnamese. He just went over there and did what he could. And I just thought that's wrong. And and then having experiences in Gardens of Stone, hanging around the soldiers from Arlington Cemetery who do such an incredible job honoring our our, our nation's you know fallen warriors. And, and then and Memphis Bell. I got to meet the guy who was the navigator of the Memphis Bell, Chuck Layton, who was one of the great guys. And uh, and, and all these people along the way had influenced me to you know to the nobility of 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 serving one's country in that way, and and also just the incredible record of the American military. You know, uh, over this over the past century, um, you know, the most humanitarian uh, military force I think in in recorded history, and the only military that, you know, all through the century we were the dominant military power for most of the century, and um, we never kept any of the places that we liberated. You know, if you think about what the price that was paid by American troops and British troops and Canadian troops uh, on D-Day. Um, I don't know that it would have been out of line to ask for, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a piece of the beach, maybe, for, uh, for America. But all we asked for was the cemetery so we could bury our dead. And, and that stuff is very profoundly moving to me because, uh, you know, there's a tremendous sacrifice that's made every day by people, you know, preserving, you know, the idea of America, the idea of Western freedom in the world. And uh, I just think that we can't do too much to support them. Do you think that the Second World War really defined where we are today? I'm a social historian and I look at the Second World War as creating a real paradigm in so many areas of society and the world. Uh, do you think that we could chart back through the 50s, 60s, 70s and really see that as the beginning of a, a new chapter for the world? Um, I think so. I, if you... Uh you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, victory was not assured. And, and the things that, that the American people and the British people and the Canadian people and, and some of our other allies did to overcome Nazism, to overcome Imperial Japan, uh, will, will, will shape the world for the next several hundred years because those empires were not interested in, uh, you know, cooperation and, and uh, freedoms with other countries. I mean, they were all entirely about world domination. So if, if we didn't stop those, aggressions, who knows where it would have led. And I, I think it would be great if, if more people in the West were more mindful of, of that more often. You know, that I, you know we, today we fight this, uh, this Islamist threat, which is very real, and, uh, and I don't know that it's as, as uh, dangerous as, as what we faced in the 1930s and 40s, but it's very real, and, uh, you know, and the, the intentions of the people who, who, who support that ideology are every bit as serious and every bit as permanent as what Imperial Japan and, and Nazi Germany sought. What about the soldiers returning now? I talked to you before the program about Missouri and my visit to St. Roberts and, and how they're trying to create a, a community for soldiers returning who can interact with kids, have a new start. There is a whole paralysis around that with 
thousands of troops coming back as there were after Vietnam and I often wonder if this time it's going to be a lot worse than those that came back from Vietnam and that was bad enough. How do you view that? I think uh, there, is, there is a great influx of people who have been badly hurt. I mean, we've had you know, almost 5,000 killed in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. I think that's the number. And, but many, many times that factor of people who have been maimed and, uh, you know, we always hear the term in the media of, you know, IED, imp improvised explosive device. Those things are actually designed to maim more than kill. So we have so many soldiers coming back who have been just horribly burned, all their features burned away, lost limbs. Um, and they're, they, they now have 50 years of life to look forward to in that condition. And I, I think that as a society, we just need to become more sensitized to those kinds of needs and, uh, and to do what we can to support those people and their families. Do you think this has become a target for you now in terms of reshaping your career or adding to your gift as a film actor? Will the, this sort of area become very pivotal in your life as you move forward? You know, I don't know. I mean, some people may misunderstand it and, and think that it's, uh, it's political or, or that it's meant to send some kind of a message, and it's not. I really just want to try and share. You know, I've had incredible prosperity in this country and in this business, and, and uh, you know, I've been a little disappointed in, in the way Hollywood at large has turned on America. You know, over the, it's since, uh, I think, sort of since the... Vietnam movies of Francis Coppola and Oliver Stone, and, and there's been a reshaping of, of the narrative of American history of the last hundred years, which I think is inaccurate and not useful to, to the world. And uh, so that's my own personal belief about why people in Hollywood don't support the troops more, because their experience of troops is basically characters in platoon. I mean, they, a lot of them don't know anybody in the military, since many of our, our enlistees and our all-volunteer army come from places like Texas and uh, North Carolina and the, you know, the American South, and they don't come from places like Los Angeles as much. They do come from the outlying areas. So people in Hollywood don't really know anybody in the military. So part of the idea of Letters from Hollywood was to, um, to kind of close the gap. First of all, to support the soldiers and their families and you know, send messages of gratitude and, and uh, um, that we're with you and, and you know, shout out, nothing more than that. But in the other direction, I just I was I thought it would be useful to maybe have some people, entertainers, people who have powerful positions in the media, to reconsider their relationship with our armed forces. Because um, even uh, Sean Penn was down in Haiti, and uh, on the second day after the uh, the earthquake, the 82nd Airborne showed up with uh, food, medicine, water, supplies, and the, the logistical expertise that they demonstrated impressed even him. And I thought, well, there you go. I mean, it's, it happens every time there's a disaster. I mean, when there was a tsunami in Indonesia, I mean, the, the USS Abraham Lincoln was there within six days, and, and that became the hospital, that ship. And so, you know, our military obviously is there to deter our enemies, but in, in these natural disasters, nobody does a better job than the American military in, in helping and, and, you know, lessening the misery for people all around the world. And, uh, you know, I just think that... There's a, there, there's a lot more of a story that can be told if more people in the media and Hollywood specifically become sensitized to the challenges and, and the successes that our military's had. In Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, all of our hospitals now, are our military hospitals are the medical infrastructure for the Iraqi and the Afghani people. All the doctors and nurses that were skilled people under Saddam Hussein had left. 
So if you were a member of the Ba'ath Party or something, you could get medical care. But ordinary Iraqis had no medical care at all. And now our hospitals there actually are, are their medical infrastructure. And I know that's not the reason we went there, but it's, it's a story you don't see on 60 Minutes. You know, the fact that all of our soldiers get airlifted to Germany when they get hurt. Our field hospitals are actually treating you know, combatants from the other side, civilians who are hurt, you know, that's what they do. There's a big difference, isn't there, between the role of the soldier back in the Second World War, even Vietnam, and the role now, because I've talked to a lot of soldiers who came back into um, Fort Hood. They have, in many ways, over these conflicts, become social workers, more, right. than, more, more than somebody who holds a gun and defends a country. Yeah, I mean, it's like Colin Powell said, you know, if you break it, you fix it, and uh, when we go into these places, um, unless we rebuild the infrastructure or build an infrastructure that didn't exist before, you sort of wasted your time because, you know, these are broken countries that, that have to have some kind of, a, of, a, of an infrastructure that gives the people hope so that they don't devolve again into, um, you know, despotic uh, um, situations by supporting or, or just not resisting, you know, these, these leaders that spring up in these areas that are so impoverished. So uh, I think that, you know, I don't know that the soldiers always like it because I think they would rather be, you know, warriors. But it is certainly part of what the, the commanders and the pol political leaders of our country are expecting our military to do when we go into places. This raises the point with Hollywood, with filmmakers. There's been a great shift since the 30s, the great studios then, where films really were made for their creativity, their story, their direction, their message. In recent years, Hollywood has become very much commanded by the bean counters. And I shared a program uh, with Todd Allen, who's been in some wonderful films, and he's a real Western buff, and he, he wants to create Westerns again to be able to chart America for people, especially for the younger generation who don't really understand our heritage so well. Don't you think that, that Hollywood now, more than any time, has a huge responsibility to not only, as Todd wants to do, chart where America came from with the Founding Fathers, bring back that Western spirit, the pioneers, but also today to actually highlight the sacrifice that these men and women are, are making for us? I, I think it's a great initiative to, to for Todd, for anybody else to have. I think we need... We need it at the highest levels of Hollywood, and I, you know, I mean, I look at our president. I mean, who I think is it, by all accounts, is a good guy, but when he doesn't understand that the relationship between America and England, for example, is historically much more significant and special than our relationship with almost any other country in the world, when when he doesn't understand that, you have to look at what his media influences were growing up, and and I think about the kid who's going to be president 20 years from now. What movies is he watching in which the American actually is a force for good in the world? And I think that, you know, like politics is certainly downstream from culture. And the Hollywood culture right now is to characterize America and Americans as the problem. And that's not the world that I live in. Isn't there a danger, though, right now of internationalism? America and the UK as well are all over the world. We have you know, 900, 1,000 installations all over the world. It, it makes you wonder whether we haven't extended ourselves too far and, and could be considered as internationalists. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's tricky, uh, you know, because we can't obviously go everywhere in the world and solve every problem. 
but there are some hot spots, obviously the Middle East and uh, you know the Korean Peninsula and uh, some other places where, if the Western militaries are not there, you know all heck's going to break out. And in order to continue to enjoy the standard of living and the freedoms that we have, we do need to remain to a certain extent the world's policemen. I don't see any any uh, replacement coming along for that in any any kind of way. So. I, I would agree with scaling back some of our missions overseas and uh, being more selective about where we go. But I, you know, I think we absolutely have to be in the Middle East. I mean, we were we were scaling down our presence in Germany um, after the Soviet Union fell. But we, our our military needs to be near the places where troubles li liable to break out. Otherwise, it can't be as effective as it would be otherwise. Letters from Hollywood. Are there any long-term objectives here? You know, I would love to. I would love to have some actor or writer or director say to me, you know what, until I wrote that letter, I, and I never really thought about what my relationship was with the people who have who, who fought for this country, who continue to serve the country. And it made me, it made me rethink this project I'm working on. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think there's been eight or nine movies about Iraq and Afghanistan in the eight or nine years since we've been in those places this time around. And, uh, I think there's been more atrocities in those movies than there have been in the actual theater. I think that's a terrible shame. And I think that while certainly there's been things that are horrible that should be talked about and, and reviled, like My Lai Massacre, there's been, there was a bad incident at Haditha. You know, there's always bad things that happen, but I, I, I think that people in Hollywood have to remember that we have hundreds of thousands of people in uniform. Their, their ages from 18 to 27, roughly, is the median age of most of the people in the military. If you took 200,000 young men of any, any sample, you want, in Detroit, in New York, any, any state in America, and looked at the incidences of violent crimes, felonies, rapes, the American military is 100 times less likely to commit any of those crimes. But when they are committed, the entire military gets smeared with, with this brush of, you know, that these guys are animals. What about your friends in the business? People like Kevin Sorbo. I mean, Kevin and uh, and maybe Costner or maybe even Todd might turn up and say, "Yeah, I'll help you with this." How are you? How are you convincing them to, to become involved in this? Now, are they reluctant or are they happy to help? You know, you know, it varies. I it's it's tricky. I mean, I've gone. I went through all the easy people that I, uh, you know, that I initially that I knew would, you know, my friend John McGinley. I knew he'd want to do it because he's a patriotic guy. Uh, Joe Mantegna, a uh, big supporter of our military. Cuba Gooding, um, you know, I went through sort of like the people that I know would immediately do it. And I've had a lot of other people say, yeah, I'll do it and then never do it. Um, it but it is, it is a bit of a challenge because I, I don't want some message from a publicist, you know, some Hallmark card. You know, I would, I'm trying to emphasize that, say something personal, anything personal about your experience, about your life, uh, anything, a movie you saw that changed the way you thought or, or just something specific that you want to say to the troops. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's challenging for some people because they hadn't really ever thought about it, and now you have to write it down. So, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been more difficult recruiting letter writers than I thought. We haven't made every Wednesday morning. You know, I promised a new letter every Wednesday, and we don't always make it. So, uh, you know, but I've got a great letter coming up from Max Martini, who was on the unit. Great guy. Um, so I, I'm just continuing to find it, but I, I think that it's rewarding, and I think it ties into, you know, some of these soldiers and their families who are dealing with uh, multiple deployments they come back here and then maybe some guy he's feeling a little low and he types up letters from hollywood he's like oh i like that guy in the you know the guy from the unit he's a good actor that's great that he took the trouble and 
I feel like it can make a difference. So I'm going to continue to pursue it as long as I can and try to, you know, win over some new converts. And maybe it's an entry, it's an entryway for some actor or performer to think, wow, that, I got so much good response from that letter I wrote. I saw some military guys in the airport and they said to me, I saw your letter. Maybe that guy, maybe that actor or performer would think, you know what, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Fort Hood and I'm going to go uh, shake some hands and meet some people. And, you know, and maybe it's the beginning of some, something because I think that in the Second World War especially, Hollywood did an incredible job with uh, supporting the troops and, and even right through Vietnam, people like Bob Hope and Raquel Welch, I mean, they were doing, it's very important to, uh, you know, take care of people uh, who, who have put on the uniform. Looking back, you have this motorcycle accident when you're young. Do you ever look back now and think, well, it was obviously part of the deal. That's, that had to happen. That's why I'm here. Have you ever looked at it that way and, and wondered why? You know, it's, uh, there's so many little points in one's life where, you know, if you go left or right, everything else that follows would never have happened. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, it accelerated my leaving sports and getting into my career so maybe it was a blessing in disguise that uh, had I not been able to make a career out of playing sports it maybe it would have taken me seven or eight more years before I got it through my thick head but uh, in the meantime I was I was so young and you know when you're when you're in your early 20s you know you're much more resilient I think you're much more you know you can you can change gears and it's not it doesn't cost you as much as later in your life so uh, you know, I, I think that, it, you know, I don't know if it was part of somebody's plan, but, you know, I, I like the way my life worked out. I mean, I, I think I've, I've had an incredible um, uh, series of opportunities with these films that I've done. And I, I just feel, uh, I feel very blessed to have, to have been able to work in this business. Favorite film, looking back over your life? Eight Men Out, baseball movie. Um, it, was, uh, it was just a great experience. We had so many good actors and uh, great script and you know to play an iconic American figure uh, that had never been played before and at the time they were filming Bull Durham and I thought Kevin Costner did a great job in Bull Durham with portraying a baseball player but before Eight Men Out in Bull Durham nobody had ever really played a baseball player believably um, Robert De Niro failed miserably and banged the drum slowly Gary Cooper was so athletically inept that uh, they really couldn't even show him doing anything. So it was a, it was a point of pride that I, I wanted to be a part of the first movie that got it right. Looking back, my programs always delves into people's childhood because that really defines where mm -hmm. we go, who we are, uh, how stable we are, or perhaps how chaotic we are in life. How much do you attribute now, looking back to your childhood, that has really got you to where you, you are today? Childhood is a very important yeah. time. Well, you know, um, my parents were very, uh, very active parents. You know, my dad, as I mentioned, was an educator, and uh, he did some really smart things. Um, like dinner time was really important. Um, we always had dinner together as many nights as we could until later in teenage years when sports and things got in the way. But uh, you know, he used to really engage us. I had two. I have two sisters and a brother. And he used to actively engage us and say, uh, you know, we play games like opposites, like, you know, when you're four years old, the opposite of, you know, fast, you know, and then he would, they would become more and more um, subtle, the, the opposites and, and synonyms. We play all these kind of fun games. And, uh, and then he did something which I thought well, I'm going to do with my kids, which I thought was really smart, is that he was a lifelong smoker until I was born. I was his third child and he quit cold turkey and he realized how damaging it had been to his health, even at that point as a young fairly young man, 29 years old. And uh, so he came in when, when uh, my sisters were about 
12, 11, I was about 10, my brother was nine or eight. And uh, he bought four packs of cigarettes on the dinner table after dinner and four books of matches. And he said, hey, you guys are probably curious about cigarettes. And uh, so I got you some. And uh, if you, uh, if, if you want to, sm- you're welcome to smoke anytime you want in the house with me. But if I ever catch you smoking anywhere else in school or out in the woods or anything like that, you'll be grounded. So we all immediately took out the cigarettes and started lighting up and it was so exciting. And of course, cigarettes are terrible. And so he took away all the fun of smoking and replaced it with the reality that you're just putting a bunch of smoke in your lungs. And so I thought that was really smart parenting. I might swipe that one from them. How do your parents feel about where you are today? It must be pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a, you know, I mean, like, a, you know, from a small town on Long Island, my, my dad was a teacher. His dad was a printer. You know, my mom, uh, you know, same thing from a small town. In, you know, she's from a, a neighborhood in Queens. We moved out to this small town. So, I mean, you know, we don't know anybody in show business. And uh, so, that, you know, they feel like I've, I've done pretty well and they you know they're proud of it and and especially you know now I think you know it's I've stayed out of the tabloids for 25 years in this business which is not easy to do I mean you know especially now with this increasingly 24-hour you know uh, salacious media cycle that we're in I mean I just you know not that I've never made any mistakes but you know a lot of the people a lot of my peers people that I came up with you know obviously they they all have some skeletons and uh, so I've remained fairly skeleton free I think where are you going from here I really want to make some great movies. You know, I, I, I feel like I've finally learned how to act after all this time. I feel like I wasn't really necessarily screwing it up earlier in every occasion, but uh, I really feel like I know what I'm doing now. And if I, if I run into a good part right now, I think, uh, I, I think I could really do something. So I'm hoping that I can find some good roles and, and, uh, um, and just make some movies that help people get through their week. You know, like in... Uh, Sullivan's Travel is one of my favorite movies. You know, the film director discovers, oh wow, I'm just, it's very noble to make people laugh and forget their troubles. And that's, that's my mission. That's what the director discovers. And I, f- I feel the same way about my work. If I can, you know, some poor schlub who's, you know, working for the electric company, he's, you know, he's doing a dirty, hard jo- job 40, 45 hours a week. If he wants to come out and see my movie or put it in his DVR and, and it helps him relax, I feel like that's a, you know, that's, that's something worth shooting for. So that's, 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 that's what I have in mind when I read scripts and when I think about a part. Is it important for you to make films that people can really connect to, that they can become much more conscious about the world that they're in today that clearly is going through a paradigm shift, going into almost a different dimension as we proceed here? Is that your intent, is to, to, to really help people as well through the films? Well, I, I think one of my goals is to, is to make a movie that um, that all audiences can enjoy. And I don't mean that it should be rated G or anything like that, but Hollywood used to make movies that that were not targeted at like one demographic stripe. You know, this is a kid's movie. This is a uh, an art movie. This is, you know, they have all these different classifications. And I, you know, a movie like Casablanca, I mean, that, that's a movie you could watch if you're eight years old or if you're 80 years old. Um, the one film that most people know me from is The Cutting Edge. And that's a very soft PG, you know, it's, it's, it's universal enough that, again, you know, you could watch it with your grandmother or your kid and not feel embarrassed and not feel like it's inappropriate. So, I mean, I think that those kinds of movies today are only made by Pixar, which is unfortunate, you know. And uh, so I would love to find a, a story or a script that doesn't rely on somebody's head exploding or, or, or sex scenes to, you know, to move the needle. I think that, you know, if, if you have a good enough script, you don't need all that stuff. You see yourself a traditionalist. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a lot of that stuff is, you know, is diversionary. You know, it's like the magician moving his other hand so you don't see what's really going on. And most of the movies that have a lot of violence or, or shocking sort of depictions of sex or something, they usually have weak stories and they need those things in order to distract you from the fact that the story is very weak. And in the next year, any particular productions that you're working on that, that we should know about? Well, I've, I've written two TV pilots and I've written a screenplay and I'm hoping to get one of them going. You know, it's, it doesn't get any easier just because I've directed a movie to, uh, to get the next one going. I mean, if, if my movie had gone on and, you know, been a big blockbuster or, or won uh, an Academy Award or something, then maybe doors would open a little bit more. But um, I'm just back in there slugging, you know, just trying to, trying to find a good part for myself. And if I can't find a good part for myself, write a good part for somebody else. My final question is, we all have the kid inside of ourselves. We all bring the kid right through our lives. What is the, the kid in you still? You know, we all grow wisdom. We, we all grow smarter. We fill our heads with information. And finally, we get to a stage in life where we, we get it. But what is it that, the, about the kid in you that is still there and, and, and you want to retain that? Well, acting is, at its heart, a very childlike profession. And I think that, uh, you know, kids are all very good actors because they haven't yet learned how to uh, edit themselves and govern their impulses in a way that's, you know, necessarily socially acceptable in every context. So, so I try to hang out with kids as much as I can. I have my own kids now and they're the best acting teachers. You know, they're very present and they, uh, they're very focused on whatever the task at hand is. They're not worried about what happened 20 minutes ago or what's going to happen 20 minutes from now. And, uh, so I, I try to cultivate the kid in me as much as I can through my own kids and through have, you know, I love to go to an arcade and just shoot at a target or just do sort of like the mindless kind of stuff that when you're a kid is all you need to be doing. And um, so, I mean, I keep, I keep my inner kid pretty, pretty well uh, lubricated and, uh, you know, uh, in action. How do they see daddy? Well, I don't let them, I haven't let them see anything that I've been, uh, I, don't li I don't like them to know me as an actor because, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a little confusing. So uh, I've done a few animated movies. I've let them where I do the voice, and I've let them see those. And I'm getting ready to let them see, you know, the Cutting Edge and and maybe some of these other ones. But I really don't want my kids to go into this business because it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a tough business. I mean, people are uh, there's not a lot of nice behavior that goes on in Hollywood. I mean, it's people are pretty cutthroat. So there's also some great people. So uh, uh, you know, but I'm just like any parent. You know, I just I, you know I want my kids to find a nice life where they're not going to be you know emotionally brutalized the way Hollywood can brutalize especially my daughter I mean Hollywood's harder on women than men and uh, so I, I, I would I would discourage them in any way that I can if I take my father's example I probably should encourage them and that will discourage them so uh, I have to figure out what the proper psychology is DB Sweeney it's been a pleasure today thanks very much for joining me I do appreciate it thank you very much I've enjoyed it too Thank you. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 